Would you all pray with me quickly? Lord, we're grateful that you have gathered us by your spirit and by your word, and you, we pray that you would send us out rejoicing in your name. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and be seated. If you've been in church the past few weeks, you will know that we've had an interesting slate of readings. Last week, we got to uh, hear Jesus talk about hell, always exciting. And this week, we get to hear Jesus talk about divorce and marriage. Um, you can't claim that Christianity isn't interesting, right? I mean, this is, this is uh, you can't make it up. It's exciting stuff. So, um, we will talk today a little bit about marriage and divorce. And of course, you realize for the preacher, for the Christian, the true risk of preaching and teaching about marriage isn't actually about the possibility of offending people, though I certainly don't want to do that. But marriage, as we'll see, is about so much more than a topic of simple moral debate. It is a gift, as I hope to show us. It's a gift. It's a gift given to us from God. It's not of our own invention, but it's given by our Lord for the good and for the sake of the world. It's given to us for our own good. I'd say at its core, marriage above all else is this living image. It's like an icon that allows us to see with a sort of uh, intensity the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And I think that is, in fact, why it is such a sensitive topic, because uh, it's it is wrapped up in who God is. It's why we, we argue about it, we debate about it, we describe what it should and shouldn't be, how it should function. I think it's why marriage can wreck your life or bless your life or sometimes even both. It's because marriage, you see, it holds these hidden glimmers of God's own heart for the world. It's a charged topic, and it should be because it is about God Himself. And I think the power of marriage is, in fact, why our gospel reading plays out the way it does. So I'd like to just walk us through it quickly, as quickly as I can anyway. So remember, Jesus is teaching crowds. That's what he does frequently. He's teaching crowds, and the Pharisees show up. They're the religious elite, and they show up in order to test Jesus. Our gospel reading says that's specifically why they're there. They want to test Jesus, so they have no interest, it seems, and actually finding out his opinion about marriage or divorce, but they just want to, to trap him. However, Jesus knows the heart of the Pharisees, and he also knows the importance of marriage. And so even when they only want to trick him, he jumps at this opportunity to teach them and us about marriage. So the Pharisees say, teacher, Teacher, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus, again, he knows the Pharisees. He knows that they are religious hardliners, and so he asks them. He responds with a question, what did Moses tell you? This is a question that they should presumably know as experts of the law. And they answer him back by turning to Deuteronomy 24, which is the second account of the law. They say a certificate of divorce could be issued, and the divorce would then be validated. But then Jesus responds to them again, and his response here, before we jump into it, is interesting for at least a couple reasons. And the first is this, as we'll find out, he is far more interested in talking about marriage than he is divorce. Well, I'd rephrase that. He's more interested, it seems, in talking about marriage than divorce. It's as if he says, 
You can't fully understand divorce or any of the things that accompany marriage until you first understand what marriage is about. So he explains to them that provisional quality of the command in Deuteronomy 24. I say provisional because I think it's intended for people, as he says, who have developed a hardness of heart, Israelites who have become uh, calcified to the teachings of God, not unlike the Pharisees. And so he says that that command in Deuteronomy was given for their hardness of heart. But then he continues. He says way more. He says, it was not meant to be so from the beginning. And then he does, uh, which you can see in your reading, you'll notice he's quoting, he's quoting Genesis actually. He appeals to this older authority than the law of Moses. He appeals to the creation account itself. And so he quotes these multiple sections of Genesis that we just heard read today. He quotes Genesis 1.27, says male and female he created them. Then he quotes chapter 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. All familiar passages to us. But then he does something that's truly remarkable and should be shocking to us, would certainly have been shocking to the Pharisees. He concludes those quotations by adding his own summary. In other words, he adds to Scripture itself. He adds to Scripture. And he says those famous words, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And that profound statement, very simple, I think it reveals a hidden truth that Jesus wants us to hear by saying what God intended at at creation. And by adding to the Scriptures themselves, Jesus is telling them and us that He is an authority even greater than Moses Himself. He says, in effect, you claim to know and interpret the Scriptures, but I am the master of Scripture. He says, I know the intentions of God, in effect. I know what He was trying to do at the beginning. I am the master of the Word because I am the Word. But what he also insinuates in this response to them by adding to the teachings in Genesis is that he is the master of marriage itself. Jesus is the master of marriage. I just did a a wedding here last night. Literally, I was standing in this exact place, in fact, and uh, there's this moment right after the couple makes vows. You'll all know, you've seen this before. They make their vows, they make their promises, the marriage has been, uh, it's, it's happened, the, the covenant has been established, and the way that the priest uh, declares the truth of the marriage is by using that exact phrase that Jesus adds to Scripture. He says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Or the older language, which I like, what God has joined together, let no one rend asunder. You can't break it. It's not meant to be broken. And and I have to be perfectly honest with y'all. I am an old school Episcopalian. I believe that there are two sacraments and not seven. However, as a priest who presides over these sorts of affairs, when you say those words over a couple, I'm telling you it feels as if something truly sacramental occurs. 
It is this powerful moment where it's tangible to me. I think it's tangible to everyone else. It's why we come to so many marriages, because they're incredible. We come to them because we see that God does something in them, don't we? We come to them because we know that in marriage, God is actually at work. So you see, I think that's what Jesus is getting at. He is saying, I am the Lord of marriage. Thereby, marriage is something that only God can do. It is not a human invention. It is not the product of cultural development. It is not fodder for our own political opinions. It is a gift that is given in God's own graciousness for our sake. So Jesus says, before you have any opinions about divorce or remarriage or any of those other topics, you have to see that marriage is first and foremost this profound gift that mirrors God's own heart for the world. It reveals his own character. And that's why the strangeness of this Jewish unmarried teacher cares so much about it. It's why he engages the Pharisees so seriously, even when they don't really want to know what he thinks. Because the Lord of marriage wants them and you to see that marriage reflects his own person. In effect, Jesus tells them, I am the reason that you long for all of the relational things that you do because I am the master of marriage and you. But then the story, as you remember, it takes a strange turn. Jesus teaches them all of these astounding things about marriage and about himself, and then all of a sudden, it's as if the stage clears. It's kind of a mic drop moment. Jesus makes these challenges about the way that they think things should be. It turns out not to be the case, and then the, the, it's just over. I have no clue what the, what the Pharisees go to do. Surely they are challenged by Jesus' teaching, and they head for the hills. But it's interesting, the disciples don't really understand all of this either. And so as the disciples gather again with Jesus later on, and they are alone in a room, they confront him again in private. They say, Jesus, what, what did you mean? And that's, of course, when Jesus makes the most challenging comment of our gospel reading. He says in verse 11 and verse 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And whoever divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery against him. It's a hard teaching. And before we jump into what this means, and I want to do that, I want to again remind you why the conversation culminates in this statement, in a statement like this. Remember, Jesus begins by affirming the divine establishment of marriage in creation itself, in the creation of Adam and Eve. He is proving that marriage is something that God created then, and it's something that he creates now. He makes marriage. There is this divine work, as I just said. And thus, because these marriages, our marriages, are all made by God, what that means is that there is this inevitable permanence to them. There's a permanent quality to marriage. They're made by God. He creates it. And so, for human beings to end their marital vows, something that they undertook but God blesses and creates, will necessarily be destructive. I think that's what he's getting at. Divorce will necessarily be destructive. And I think that means a few things for us. And the first one is this. 
I, I am not so sure that that's actually that controversial of a statement. Some of you are kind of on the edge of your seats, but I, I, don't, I don't think that describes anything that you don't already know. For instance, I have never heard anyone describe their divorce as pleasant. Just haven't heard that. I've never heard anyone say that it's even a non-issue. I haven't heard that. Typically, when I hear people describe their divorces or I hear friends who have had more experience in this than I have, divorces are typically described as painful, as complicated, and very often as destructive. And so I think Jesus' teaching here, it actually makes sense of that reality. It names that pain which you might not understand, and it gives you a reason for why it's there. And that way it helps us. It tells us why it hurts. Now, second, I think it's important to add at this point that there is a parallel text. Richard pointed this out to me last week. Thank you, Richard. Matthew 19, Jesus adds a caveat, and some of you will know this. He says marriage covenants, marriage vows can be dissolved because of infidelity. I think what he's getting at here is infidelity itself is a kind of rupture of the union that God establishes. And so under the conditions of infidelity, it is purely up to the couple to decide how they might honor those broken vows. And personally, I'll just add, I would include abuse under that category as well. I think abuse is in its own way a form of adultery. So, infidelity is reason for divorce, Jesus says. And third, I fully recognize that to many of you, Jesus' teaching here is sobering. But the thing that you need to remember is that statements like this are not at all out of character for Jesus. Remember, he regularly draws out the difficulty of keeping the law. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount and not felt convicted? It is purely, it's impossible. So, for instance, he says in Matthew 5, 27 and 28 in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if anyone looks at a woman and lusts after her, they commit adultery in their heart. That is challenging, right? And now I clearly think that committing adultery in one's heart and committing adultery in the flesh are two different things, but it does seem abundantly clear to me that Jesus wants all people to recognize that they sin. Jesus wants all people to recognize that when they look at the history of their own life, not only do they see it uh, littered with sins, but they have a continual temptation of sin in their own heart in the present. So I'd say all of us, whether we are in broken marriages or successful marriages or no marriages at all, we all, in some way or another, have broken God's law. And thus, there is not a single person on this earth who should not feel convicted by the teachings of Jesus. Because there is only one person who is not convicted by the teachings of Jesus, and that is Jesus himself. And that brings me to my last point. Jesus, as you all know, as I mentioned, Jesus was unmarried. He he never chose a, a spouse in his earthly life. And by doing that, I think part of what he's doing is he is modeling for us a way of life, a calling for some of us. Singleness, as many of you know, is a is a calling that has been prominent in the church tradition for many, many centuries. 
And thousands and thousands of men and women have built up the church through that calling, through singleness. However, I don't think that is the only reason that Jesus was unmarried. I believe that Jesus was unmarried because he was already betrothed to a spouse that you and I know intimately, the church. See, if you look throughout all of Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New, one of the most prominent figures for the relationship that God has with his people is actually marriage. It's marriage. The relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ is figured in the relationship of marriage. However, unlike our marriages and our relationships that we can easily dissolve for good reasons or bad reasons, the marriage that God undertakes with his people is in fact infinitely durable. And you know this, we can abandon this partner, we can slander him, we can abuse him, we did in fact abuse him, and this partner will always, always take us back. And that, of course, as you know, is exactly what the gospel is about. In the gospel, I'll remind you, Jesus willingly becomes a human being. He undergoes a commitment that is permanent. You realize that? He becomes human forever. You can think of this as a marriage established by God where he is bound to us in one flesh, and so he becomes what we are forever. And so when Jesus says things like what God has joined together, let no one separate, you've got to see he is not just talking about our marriages. He is talking about himself. You see? He's talking about the marriage between God and humanity that abides in his own person because he is the Lord of marriage. And you've got to realize it's even better than that. It's not just that this is a permanent marital relationship. It's that even when we abandoned him, were unfaithful, had no regard for him, sought after other things, he pays the price to make it right. He goes to the far country to bring us back, and he pays the cost of bringing us into the presence of his own goodness. And that, of course, is exactly what the cross is all about. You see, Jesus cares about marriage so much because he is the Lord of marriage. And whether you are single or you're divorced or you're married, this is the figure that defines who you are. You are the bride of Jesus Christ. And I think there is probably no better image for this relationship than the latter part of our gospel reading. Have you noticed we've only really talked about the beginning part of our gospel reading? There's this strange section where the reading, uh, it, it shifts topics. Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, and then all of a sudden, children start showing up. Modern cr- critics probably say that was an accident. Maybe it was, you know, the, the gospel writers had a bad editor or something. I don't think that's the case. I think God knows what he's doing with his scriptures. See, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Lord of marriage and the great teacher, is showing us in these actions something about himself in that very moment that gives us an inner glimpse into his very heart. Because you see, just like those children, unimportant, 
meandering, fickle, overlooked, unclean. Jesus willingly takes sinners into his own arms. He wants to touch them. And even more than that, he blesses them. You see, Jesus can bless sinners because he has bound himself to them. And even more than that, he has bought them with his own life. And so you see, friends, marriage is about so much more than our opinions. It's about God himself. Because we are the bride of Christ. And I think not only should that inform your marriages or your relationships or your friendships or whatever, but it should inform who you are at your very being, at your very core. You need to hear You are the beloved of Jesus Christ, and he will never, ever, ever abandon you because he has established his love for you permanently in his own body and at the cost of his own blood. And friends, that is very good news. You are the bride of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.